Okay, welcome to the sundown. It is Thursday, May the 14th. We are still in, or we are in the sixth and final marking period. And uh, we have a special guest joining us here today. It is Mr. Tartaglia of the business community. How are you, Mr. Tartaglia? I'm doing well, Mr. Ishii, Mr. Weissmuller. Thanks for having me. No problem, no problem. We, Happy uh, to have you. Yeah, we, we've been discussing some Major League Baseball uh, news with them coming back and the, the major, some of the major issues that we're going to dis- discuss later and what we have been discussing have been about uh, the unions and how the unions have leverage over the league and when the league has leverage and back and forth and back and forth and this tied into uh, women, the women's national soccer team um, with their negotiations, which we discussed um, in an earlier podcast. So we, we thought it would be great to have on uh, the school's union chapter leader, uh, which a lot of the students probably don't know and they probably don't really care, but it is... Uh, um, Definitely and, don't care. You know, they don't care, but um, as far as the school functioning and a lot of decisions that are made in this within the school and out of the school... Um, the chapter leader and uh, the union itself is probably one of the most important pieces of the school. So can you just uh, run down a little bit about what you do and then also kind of like what the, the teachers union does as far as uh, when it comes to protecting the teachers? Yeah, so every three years in a school building, um, public schools for the most part in New York City, um, members of a staff that are represented by the United Federation of Teachers have an election um, and they elect a chapter member to be chapter lead. Um, And my role after I I was elected, um, I I ran for the office unopposed, which means that nobody else wanted the position two years ago. So I didn't actually have to make any, I didn't actually have to go to any debates or anything like that, which actually worked out in my favor, I think. but my role is really just to uh, be a voice for the over 120 members of the union that work in Sunset Park High School, represent people in conversations with our school administrators like Principal Antonini um, and our community leaders, uh, represent teachers and other staff members in disciplinary conferences, help people understand and access their health benefits. Um, and generally kind of collect the uh, overall opinions that the staff has to try and improve everything from our instruction to um, safety in the building. So the position is kind of a catch-all, and the way that I've interpreted it is trying to um, get myself into as much as I possibly can uh, in the building to try and improve the experience of the teachers and the staff while also keeping in mind that um, a lot of times what we want is to have um, a better experience for the students uh, and through that um, through that seeking out of a better experience for the students um, I feel like the experience of everybody at the same time generally improves. Yeah, and I, I think I want to I wanna be clear that uh... You know, you ran unopposed probably because it's a very important and also very difficult job. Uh, it's it's a lot of responsibility, and not everyone is always in a rush to take on a lot more responsibility. 
but I think you've done a really great job for us um, in the in the years that you've have been doing this. Um, so you kind of covered a little bit about what it is you do in your role as the chapter lead. What it is? What is it that the UFT and the union is really designed to do for teachers? Well, it's it's basic job protections um, and quality of life for the people that work uh, in public schools and make our make it so that our public schools can operate. We have the largest public school system in the country. Um, we serve thousands and thousands of students, um, and it's the teachers and the paraprofessionals and the secretarial staff that actually make these things happen. Um, and so, what the union does is make sure that the people in the trenches, so to speak, in the public schools have access to quality health care, affordable health care, and have access to basic rights as teachers. Um, You know, for example, a lot of what the union does is try to negotiate to make sure that teachers are um, receiving uh, pay raises as often as possible. Um, trying to argue that class sizes should be smaller because a smaller class size is better for students and better for teachers. So anything you can think of that would make life better for teachers, the union is oftentimes at the forefront of trying to make that happen. Um, Okay. And as far as, because we've been covering some of the corona stuff, can you talk about potentially, and I'm not sure if we even know this for sure, but what, what do you think the union is doing right now as far as protecting teachers for the upcoming school year? Are they, do you think they're part of the negotiations with the DOE, with the, the school system? Is that what you think is happening? Or do you um, know? What, your question is about possibly reopening schools and, and safety for staff and students. Yeah, and, and what the union's role is in, in this negotiation. Yeah. I would imagine that the union is probably has a seat at the table with the mayor and the chancellor as far as yeah. uh, coming to an agreement on what they think is a, a good policy as far as reopening. You know, it's tricky. I, I don't want to be... Um, it's tricky because, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of pissing match the ongoing pissing match between the mayor of New York, Mr. de Blasio, and the governor of New York State, Mr. Cuomo, has kind of um, muddied the waters, so to speak, between um, the teachers' union and what exactly we have the power to fight against. So if you guys remember, um, we lost our spring break, and the mayor uh, and the president of the teachers' union didn't have the power to stop that from happening. So it's really hard to say whether or not we have our fair share of, of a say in what's going to happen going forward. I'm hoping that our teachers union has a seat at the table. I know that they will in terms of what happens with schools um, and Chancellor Carranza and Mr. de Blasio. I can't confirm uh, whether or not we have that same seat at the table or whether we have the same influence with, Mayor, uh, with Governor Cuomo. Um, as far as the safety, as far as safety is concerned, I thought that schools stayed open a week too long. Um, I thought that Mr. De Blasio and Mr. Mulgrew, the president of the teachers' union, were about a week or so too late. Just like every other elected official in the country, uh, including the president of the United States. Um, and so, I would I would 
hope that safety is the first thing on their minds when uh, thinking about reopening schools because, as I said before, we have the largest school system in the country and uh, we have class sizes with a limit of 34 students per class. So social, at least in high schools, so social distancing um, in schools is going to be really challenging to achieve unless we're able to institute some new guidelines, make sure that schools are disinfected on a daily basis, and um, change some of the way that we go about schooling, um, at least compared to what things used to be. Now, okay. you, you've, you've talked about, uh, you know, that's sort of an active debate in terms of making sure that teachers are working in a safe environment. And, of course, the students coming in as well in, into a safe environment. You also talked about making sure the teachers have access to quality health care and negotiating of making sure teachers get regular raises. I just want to clarify with the students, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about how that's not just for any individual teacher or teachers specifically at Sunset Park High School, right? Because as a uh -huh. union, we do something called collectively bargain. Right. Yeah, so um, yeah. So essentially what collective bargaining means is that we're able to negotiate with our bosses, for lack of a better term, um, to make sure that uh, if we're going to work for them, um, they have to meet certain requirements. Uh, if you go back uh, throughout the history of the labor movement, one of the original... Um, tentpole fights that organized labor engaged in was the fight for a standard eight-hour workday, 40-hour workweek. Um, prior to the early 1900s, uh, when being in a union and organizing with your fellow workers was something that could get you killed or seriously hurt or arrested, um, bosses uh, had the right and owners had the right to force you to work however long they wanted to, and if you didn't want to do that, they'd find somebody else to do the job. The reason that we organize as workers is so that those kind of things can't happen. Um, when I say that we have job protections, I mean that we can't just be fired because a principal disagrees with us or doesn't like us. Um, it's a lot harder to get rid of teachers that clash with administrators, and it gives us a lot more freedom uh, to fight for things that we think are necessary and appropriate in our schools. Um, and so it does give power to the worker. Uh, unfortunately, on a national level, outside of government employees, and I, what I mean by that are city workers, state workers, and federal workers, uh, if you look at the private sector, um, so people who are not teachers, firefighters, sanitation workers, things of that nature, membership in organized labor um, is down across the board. Um, making it a lot harder for workers to fight for basic human rights that they believe that they deserve, like, um, you know, a livable minimum wage. I keep mentioning access to health care, uh, things of that nature. All right. Well, I, I think you've given us a lot of stuff. We're going to we're going to talk a little yeah, bit about uh, a little bit about union and collective bargaining. Uh, yeah. in our in our last segment about uh, Major League Baseball, uh, you also brought up some stuff about uh, the schools reopening, which uh, uh -huh. is going to lead us into our next segment, um, which is called What Did He Say? And uh, you're free to stay on or um, or you could hop off. It's up to you. Whenever you have to go, you can go. Um, okay. while, while you're here, you're more than welcome to, to get on. So our, our next segment, um, we're bringing it back to one of our favorite people in this segment. And uh, Ishii, would you like to get us rolling with that? Yeah, sure. So uh, this week on Tuesday, 
Dr. Fauci, who we've brought up a number of times on the podcast, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He testified before the Senate Committee for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Uh, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, and Kentucky is kind of in a little bit of a beef with New York right now. At least our governor has gone back and forth with Mitch McConnell, who's the other senator from Kentucky. Uh, he called it ridiculous uh, that schools aren't open because kids can't get or don't get uh, COVID. So Fauci, Dr. Fauci responded by saying, I think we re- really better be careful that we're not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. Uh, we don't know everything about the virus, and we really, really better be careful, particularly when it comes to children, because uh, the more we learn, we're seeing things about, the vir- about what the virus can do that we didn't see from studies in China or Europe. So Fauci basically encouraging caution, saying we don't yet have all the information. Maybe let's get more information before we start to put kids and teachers at risk. Um, So uh, yesterday, uh, the president of the United States responded to his top infectious disease uh, advisor uh, by saying that uh, that he's trying to play both sides of the equation. And what Trump ended up saying is. I think they should open schools absolutely. He says that uh, coronavirus has had very little impact on young people. He said uh, that our country has to get back, and it has to get back as soon as possible. And I don't consider our country coming back if our schools are closed. He would strongly say they should open, and then closed by saying, but it's up to the governors, but I don't consider the state open if the schools aren't open. So, uh, well, you know, I'll let you guys respond to it. Uh, that's really all that was said this week on, on the matter. Yeah, well, once once again, once again, I mean, Fauci's like a, a thorn in the president's side. You know, he's <laughs> like any anybody who can bring some kind of common sense and scientific approach to this pandemic mm-hmm. is my <laughs> enemy, you know? Yeah. So I think I think the president also said something about you know, opening up should happen. The only thing that would be acceptable is giving older teachers uh, a few more weeks before they would come back. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, the disease attacks, he says, uh, because this, this is a disease that attacks age and it attacks health. So, sure. Also known as a disease, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Go ahead, Mr. T. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so this is, again, I mean, another example of just complete, complete uh, disregard for science, facts, a lack of empathy. um, Human life. Yeah, human life. I mean, there has been, I think today the total count is 85,000 right now, Americans who have passed away. And, uh, you know, on one side of the, the political aisle, they're saying, oh, the number's overinflated, overinflated. There's really no proof of that. The, uh, but actually, Dr. Fauci said that he believes the number is actually understated because the, the numbers don't include a lot of people who have passed away in their house. So the number, you're talking 80 to 85,000 people who have passed away. And I still have not heard the president really even address the pain that people are going through when it comes to losing people. Um, you know, and I know Cuomo and 
Phil Murphy, the governor of Jersey, actually, they do show some empathy. And the, the Jersey governor has highlighted people who have passed away. I think it's a nice gesture. Um, and we could we could argue, like Mr. Tartaglia said, about that we were a week behind. And the whole country was weeks behind um, on, on shutting everything down. But, like, people are past that, but they, they want they want people in government to be able to handle now how we are reacting to this situation. Um, so you're seeing a difference in that in government. Mr. Tartaglia, you could, I'm sure you have a lot to say on what's been going on. Um, what, what's your thoughts? I mean, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think there's an element of what the president said that I agree with, which is that it's going to be hard to uh, get back to business as usual without schools being open. Um, and I hope that through all of this pain and tragedy uh, and suffering that maybe a silver lining could be a newfound appreciation for the work that public schools and public school teachers do, not just education-wise, but um, as pillars of the community, as providers of um, food and, and resources and mental health um, and just a place for people to go and be together and be in a community. Um, that being said, uh, I'm not necessarily in a rush to reopen schools until we learn more about the virus itself. Um, one of the things that I find particularly troubling about the argument that it doesn't impact children um, has to do with the influenza epidemic from the late 1910s, uh, 1918, 1917, I believe. Um, but there were studies that were conducted um, looking at people who uh, had the Spanish flu um, but didn't uh, pass away as a result of the flu. They did suffer from, um, later in life, suffer from other kind of complications that it's possible were related to having the Spanish flu. And so um, we don't even know, like a lot of what people say is like, oh, kids can get the disease, but uh, kids can get the virus, but that doesn't mean that, that, you know, they're unlikely to pass away from it. But we don't know if that means, uh, you know, that, that there won't be long-term health complications related to it. I would prefer that kids don't get the virus. So, you know, so I would, I would say that, that I, I'm more inclined to agree with Dr. Fauci in that we need to wait um, until the numbers improve before we can think about reopening schools. Yeah. And, and you know, he's not, Dr. Fauci's not even saying, like, schools can't open in September. He's just saying we need to be more calculated in our approach and make sure that we have the proper guidelines in place to prevent and to keep everybody safe. So the scientists, you know, some politicians are saying we need to be very careful. Let's let's see what the experts say. Um, and then, you know, there's just some people that are just off off the rails. We need to open. We need to open. Uh, with no plan, um, again, the president leaving it to the governors when, you know, when this all started, he was saying he's the one in charge and he's the one in charge. And all the governors got together and said, look, you're in charge, but we, we, we know our states better. So we need to have a voice in this. And now, you know, he's kind of like trying, I think he sees as this has been such a disaster that he's really trying to remove himself from this disaster. Yeah. He doesn't well, yeah, want any responsibility for it. 
and yeah. that's and that's of course that's that's how he ends that's what he said is it's oh it's up to the governors so basically you know if this goes bad blame them but i want them to do this but it's not me it's them and that's his whole right. thing he doesn't want to take responsibility and i think you know i also think that what you know like what you guys are saying is and i obviously i agree with it that what fauci's saying like of course look nobody likes this nobody likes the situation that we're in everybody would love to resume their normal life fauci is saying it's not and fauci's not even saying that'll never happen he's just saying we need right. to be a lot more careful and make sure that we have the information that we need in order to do this and i think that you know one of the things that's kind of just really out there in plain sight for anyone to see is you know, because I think a lot of the times the press is focusing on what, you know, where, where are we at on testing? What's the plan on testing? What's the plan on reopening schools? What's the plan for reopening states, businesses, and so forth? I think, you know, those are good questions, but they're also at this stage irrelevant questions because I think that the plan is made plain every single day. And the plan is just everybody just go back. Just, you know, however it is, everyone get back out there and work. Will people die? Yes, but not 100% of you. So just if you die, you die. If you don't, great. But we've done what we can do. So now it's time to just get back out there. And that is the plan. And frankly, I would respect them more if they would just say that. Because, and it's also, it's not like there's any, it's not like there's no alternatives today. I read an article that, um, uh, a, a you know a liberal uh, congresswoman in Washington, uh, Congresswoman Primula, and uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's a Republican in Missouri. The two of them are both saying that uh, the federal government should cover salaries a hundred thousand dollars or less in America for about six months. That's a float for businesses who don't have to pay, and it encourages those businesses to keep their jobs, while also you know. Um, helping people just sort of weather the storm of all this. And that should be the role of the federal government. It's sort of bipartisan. I really don't see it happening, unfortunately, because again, I think that what, you know, the president and some of his allies have just decided is like, look, yeah, there's other stuff we could do. We're just not going to. So just here we go. <laughs> you know, well, another, another round of, of aid to people would be an admission on the part of the federal government that this is still going on. Right. And so like for, for half of the country that has um, an incentive to make it seem like things are back to normal or things are not as bad as people think, if they start doling out money to the people that need it, quite frankly, um, in an under, in an, with, with new legislation, to me, the reason that they don't want to do that and why the Trump administration doesn't want to do that is because that would be an admission that things have not improved as much as he would like to say that they are. So unfortunately, you know, people are people who've lost their jobs, people who've lost their health insurance, because a lot of times in this country, unfortunately, health insurance is tied to employment. Um, there's a lot of help out there that people could be receiving that they're not getting because of the um, nonsense infighting between politicians and the desire on the part of the Trump administration to make it seem like things have gotten a lot better than they actually have. Yeah, and, and this might shock a lot of 12th graders who hear this, but the 1200 bucks you got from the government is nothing. And, you know, look, I don't mean that I'm going to sneeze at it and give it back. I'm just saying if you've been out of work for an extended <laughs> period of time, right. that $1,200 is not floating you for very long. 
you know, mm-hmm. families who have to cover rent, food for multiple people in the household. Like, it's not it's not going to keep people afloat for like long periods of time. Well, it's also six six hundred dollars to somebody living in Brooklyn is a lot different to six hundred dollars for sure. somebody who's living in the Midwest um, yeah. in some suburban area where. You know, they, their rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $400 a month, right? Yeah. That same apartment in Sunset Park is probably, I don't even know, 2500 a month or 2000 a month or fifty. you know. So uh, the fact that there's no, you know, cost of living adjustment, uh, COLA, uh, as they say, is also kind of like shows you that the federal government really, they don't really look at everybody, you know, Individually, they just want to get it out there, so it's almost like they have a, a headline to say, "Look, we're helping people, right?" Yeah, and, yeah. And we've talked about this the last like three podcasts. That I mean, this is really, in, in my opinion, I mean, the Trump administration knows that in order for them to get reelected, his only his only positive thing that he has going for him is the economy, right? Or he did, he had the economy. So now that the economy is not doing as well. He doesn't really have anything else to run on, right? He hasn't done anything to help with healthcare. Uh, he has he hasn't like helped people's people's lives are not necessarily better now because of his presidency. So the economy is is one thing that he had in in his back pocket. Uh, again, the economy that really was doing well when he took office and has mm-hmm. came up minimally, but. He likes to say that he has the best economy in the world, but I mean that's a whole other discussion for another day. To look at what Obama, what what the economy looked like when Obama took over, where he brought the economy, and what Trump has done with the economy. I mean, it's like just a little bit higher than when Obama uh, left, but Obama had huge gains in the economy um, for all the markers that Trump loves to. To use, you know, like the stock market, the unemployment rate. Um, you know, the kids were probably what eight eight years old when o- Obama took over, or mm-hmm. Just around the there. And uh, unemployment was really high. The stock market wasn't doing well. And by the time that Barack Obama left office, all those things kind of were on a, on the upward tick. Trump took over and basically continued with, I guess. Uh, Obama's stock market, unemployment rate, but uh, Trump likes to say, like, you know, this is the best. It's under me. This is this has been the best. Um, but again, um, this is all about the marketing. Economy. Um, and yeah, we could keep going about that. But uh, as far as moving forward, uh, Ishi, do we want to talk a little baseball? Yes, uh, let's do it. So. Um Baseball news this week. Uh, Major League Baseball is targeting a July 1st opening day. Uh, They're targeting a June 10th spring training opening. Now, there is uh, some discussions between the Players Union, which is great that we have Mr. Tartaglia here with us to help us with this discussion. The Major League Baseball players, they have a union. They have a Players Union, um, which is in discussions with the owners of the uh, teams, and they're discussing how... Uh, salaries are going to be structured for this baseball season. So it's very unlikely that Major League Baseball will be able to play all 162 of their normal regular season games. It's probably going to get cut down to something like 80-some-odd games. What the players are saying is that, okay, we're cutting the number of games in half 
so we will expect to make roughly half of our salary. What the owners are saying is, is that, well, we're going to lose about 40% of our revenue by not allowing fans to come to the games live. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to have to cut your salaries even more. And what we'd like to do is institute a salary cap for this season. Now, the players have come back to that with two things. Number one, they want to see the owner's finances so that they can verify that they've lost 40% of their revenue, which the owners are unwilling to show all of their finances. That's number one. Number two, what a lot of our students may not know is that in 1994, uh, Major League Baseball players went on strike. And there was no World Series that year because the ownership was trying to institute a salary cap, meaning teams are only allowed to spend a certain amount of money on the salary of their players. They can't go over that. And then that sort of structures how players are paid. The players in the 90s were very much against having a salary cap in baseball. They forfeited their season and a World Series and all the money that came with it in order to ensure that there would be no salary cap. So the players are very unwilling even to have a temporary salary cap because I think it's clear that ownership will institute a temporary salary cap only to then push for it to become permanent uh, down the road. Nice. Um, yeah, one, once again, the rich are going to make it seem like the workers are the ones who are being the greedy ones. And uh, I, I think I think we see that kind of all over the place. Um, if the season from a as a sports fan and also as you know a regular person, uh, regular guy, if baseball doesn't get played because of economics and money, it's going to be very disappointing. Um, I, I would under, I would understand if the players didn't want to play this season because of health risks, um, but. It seems like the hang-up right now is economics um, yeah. and and finances. So uh, that would be kind of it would be kind of disappointed to see that. Uh, Mister Mister Tartaglia, are you a baseball fan or you have any interest? I'm in a baseball? baseball fan. Yeah, I'm. I've been following this pretty closely. Um, baseball has a rich history of labor, uh, organized labor. I mean, I think that they've gone on strike maybe seven or eight times. I don't know exactly, but um, uh, this isn't the first and it definitely won't be the last time that the players clash with the owners. Uh, we're talking about billionaire owners versus millionaire players. Um, and I think what the, obviously it's what the owners are trying to do is make it seem like the millionaire players uh, are the ones that are keeping baseball from being on our TVs at night. Um, and I think it's a brilliant strategy because um, if the public feels like the players are the ones that are keeping us from having baseball, then they're not going to side with the players. And history has shown that the public and the fans oftentimes don't support the players for some reason. They oftentimes end up supporting the billionaires over the millionaires. I think the major question through all of this outside of the economic aspect of it is um, – between the players and the owners, uh, which group is incurring the most risk? Um, risk to their health and risk to their family members' health. Um, it's not the owners. Uh, it's 100% the players. So that's where my, <laughs> yeah. that's where my sympathies lie. Um, uh, obviously, I hope that we have baseball this year. I would even love to watch a shortened season. Uh, but I applaud the players for fighting for what they believe they're due and they're owed. 
um, and hopefully the owners open up their books so that they can work something out. Well, I doubt that's happening. It seems to be the, <laughs> I don't uh, think so it seems to be the the big the big thing. The, the the rich rich the rich people don't like opening their books as we as we saw with our president and his uh, tax return. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's also very easy for them to paint the players as a bad guy because, I mean, I think unlike any other sport, and, and it's not as though any sport where the owners are – there's very few sports where the owners are more high profile than the players. But I would say baseball, it may be the sport where I know the fewest number of owners. Like, Likewise. You know, so, I mean, they're very behind the scenes, unlike – uh, certain NBA owners and NFL owners that are among kind of the league stars. And I think it's easier to blame it on players because, you know, fans think like, look at this millionaire, Aaron Judge, hitting home runs and the whole stadium screams and cheers for him. And that guy can't play because he's got to take like a pay cut and still make more money than I'll ever make in my life. What's his problem? Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, like it's harder to envision what – you know, whichever Steinbrenner is in charge now that Hank Steinbrenner died, like, I don't really know what he looks like. So I don't, you know, like, I don't even know how to like get mad at that guy. Uh, it's true. We don't have like a Jerry Jones, uh, to, to, to be pissed at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that's how it becomes easier, but it, like you guys are saying, these are billionaires versus millionaires. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a little ridiculous. And I think the other thing is too, it, it, I don't know why, but it just is easier to blame workers. And, you know, we talked a little bit about 2008 when Obama took over. There was a little bit of a backlash at teachers because the economy tanked. A lot of people lost their jobs, but teachers didn't lose their jobs. Their salaries didn't get cut and um, then neither did their pensions. And a lot of that was because we had certain protections as an organized labor group. And I think that the banks saw an opportunity because the banks were really responsible for that economic crash in 2008. And they were like, we need a different bad guy other than us. And it's like, hey, all sure. you people who just lost your retirement savings, look at those teachers over there and their fancy pensions. They're doing fine. That's not fair. And mm-hmm. so I think it's easier to turn people against one another than to, than to really focus on uh, where the power is and who has the ability to do something about uh, certain in- inequities and, and things like that. And they're just not willing to do it. Yeah, going back, going back, and bringing this back before we wrap it up. The 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 Major League Baseball. It's not like the individual players, like on the Yankees, are negotiating with the league, right? The, this is part of collective bargaining. This is why they have a union. So they have union represent union representatives. They have a head of the Major League Baseball Players Association, and these people have the players best interest so they're the ones that are negotiating with the heads of the major league baseball with the major league commissioner right so that is that's the role that the that the union plays uh in in professional sports right so they they negotiate then they go back to the players and they say look this is what they're offering us what do you guys think and then as it as a union the the players are going to go back to their representative and say go you know, listen, representative, go to the commissioner and this is what we want. So it's a back and forth. If there was no Major League Baseball union, then the owners could basically say, this is what we're doing. You have no choice. Either come play or you're getting fired. Um, a lot of, uh, yeah, and a lot of times the, the owners obviously have the players um, at a disadvantage because the owners have – other means of making income. Obviously, billionaires didn't get where they are by 
easily taking losses, but at the same time, um, and and we saw this with football recently when they just had a, a new collective bargaining agreement. Either the players were going to agree to a 17-game season and an expanded playoff, um, you know, pool, or the owners were going to sit on their hands and collect money from the from their other endeavors. Um, and the athletes don't really have other means, for the most part. I mean, other means of making money. I mean, obviously, when we think of athletes, we think of the LeBron Jameses and the Aaron Judges and and so on that have endorsements and and you know. Um, merchandise that they make money from but the vast majority of athletes in major league baseball um are not people whose names we can rattle off in this conversation and they're the ones who are going to suffer the most um so like you said tony clark the head of the baseball association is trying to represent the ultra millionaires like the ones that play for the yankees um and the guys that that you know sit on the bench uh and make league minimum which is a lot of money uh, but when you compare it to the league superstars, it's not really that much. So, um, again, I'm hoping for I'm hoping for baseball, but I don't want to see the players get screwed. Uh, so it's kind of an awkward position to be in as a fan because um, we're looking for a distraction. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to see that at the expense of the players and their family safety. Uh, Ishi, we have any final thoughts before we wrap it wrap it up? No, I think that was well said. Uh, really appreciate uh, Mr. T joining us today. Uh, was a great guest. Please come back anytime. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. This is a lot of fun. I love talking sports. And uh, if any, <laughs> again, if the students have any requests on guests, anybody you'd like to see, uh, you know, <laughs> let us know. And we'll 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 see what kind of strings we could pull to get the <laughs> teacher teacher of your choice onto, onto the podcast. So uh, uh, everybody have a good weekend. Hopefully uh, we come back next week. We have news that baseball has agreed uh, to start the season. So we'll see everybody uh, next week. Sounds Thanks, good. Thanks, guys. All right. Everybody so long, everybody. Stay safe.